Arboria. Welcome to Yeah But the Podcast. My name is Vivian Gabor, and today is a very, very special day. Um, it's a day I never thought would come. I'm really super excited. Um, y'all, we get the chance to have a conversation with the legendary, with the great Coco Peru. Hello. Hi, Vivian. How are you? I'm so good. How oh, are you? Good. I'm hanging in there. Yeah, quarantine's treating you okay? <laughs> uh, more or less, you know, I think like everybody else, um, I'm, uh, are you still there? I am still here. Oh, okay, because it disappeared for a second. Um, uh, like everybody else, I um, have my ups and downs, but mm. uh, for the most part, I feel uh, blessed. Yeah, I, f- I feel that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get to spend all day in my bedroom putting on makeup for the fun of it and making random videos instead of feeling beholden to a bar. (laughs) Yeah, amen to that, right? (laughs) Um, uh, So I think a great place to start, um, I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of yours. I've I've seen many of your works. Um, In fact, I think my first introduction to you was... um, as like an eight-year-old watching to Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar, um, with the famous scene. Um, but I was wondering if you would maybe start us off today by talking a little bit about how you started drag, because um, I don't know if I know anything about that. Oh God, I've told this story so many times, <laughs> but I'm happy to tell it again, Vivian. Um, I. <laughs> I uh, went to school, to university for theater. So I knew I always wanted to be a performer, but one of the things that um, I struggled with in school was that um, my teachers you know, blatantly told me that if I was ever going to work, I had to butch up mm-hmm. and, they, and, uh, and that I needed to lose my New York Bronx accent. And uh, I tried my best. <laughs> <laughs> When I graduated college, I realized that um, I wasn't ever going to make it. And some of the people I admired were people like Bette Midler and Robin Williams and Whoopi Goldberg, who did their one-person shows slash comedy and developed uh, their character, sort of, rather than um, going that normal route of being an actor. So that was in the back of my mind. But then also I got swept up in the gay movement and, you know, was seeing the, how AIDS was uh, killing so many people in the city where I grew up. So I knew that if you're going to 
well, no, I knew that if you want change, uh, it's not going to just happen, that you actually have to make the change, you have to be a part of the change. And so um, I wanted to be an openly gay performer and create content that was queer mm-hmm. and empowering. And so all of that sort of came together and I read a book about two-spirited people and saw myself for the first time described in a book. There was no internet back then. And uh, I was felt very isolated. And yeah. uh, suddenly I said, one day I'm gonna be a drag queen and embrace everything I've been taught to hate about myself and instead celebrate it celebrate my Bronx accent. And as soon as I made that decision, I'd never done drag before. Um, I just felt like the whole universe was there to support me. Mm-hmm. And I had fears, but my goal was like just so clear to me that I was going to change the world and make it easier for younger LGBT people that came after me through the art of storytelling and doing it in full drag and reclaiming my place in this world as a two-spirit. <laughs> and I don't mean to appropriate another culture. I can only say that reading that book was part of what changed my life. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I honor that uh, c- culture and the fact that those books were written and that they were a part of my healing uh, I had also seen Charles Bush at that time in a play, and it was I was seeing a man in full drag playing the lead in a play he had written for himself, and that really inspired me. And his sidekick was Julie Halston, who sounded like me with her very thick New York accent. And I thought, so I considered them my drag parents. And all of these things happened at the same time in New York City. And they all... Um, were a part of me developing Coco Peru. And I called a club and said, uh, I'd like to book a show in three months. And I booked the show and then I had a deadline and I worked towards that deadline and I created flyers and started going around the city. And I I can't believe some of the things I did to promote myself, but (laughs) you know, again, there was no internet. So you did what you had to do. Yeah. And I was talking about AIDS. I was talking about uh, growing up Catholic and the hypocrisy of the Catholic, sometimes the Catholic church. I was talking about the women I imitated on television. and, And I don't think at that time people were used to seeing a drag queen actually do a show where she was speaking, she was singing live, and she was talking about politics and current events and it became i have to say almost like an overnight sensation and suddenly the major papers in new york were coming to see me and it was just like a snowball effect it just kept getting bigger and bigger that must have been really exciting (laughs) it was totally exciting it was very exciting to be out to sometimes go out out of drag and people not realize who I was. And then someone would whisper, that's Coco Peru. And you could see them sort of be like, what? (laughs) So it was nice. I've always sort of played between those two worlds of, you know, my private life and my 
public life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're one of the the handful of queens that I can think of that um, when I think of you, I only ever see in your in my mind, I only ever see you in character. I don't think out of out of drag is something that's uh, common for people to see with you. And I well, think that's really cool. <laughs> it's, I always thought that part of the branding, which I wasn't even aware I was doing, <laughs> but um, is to give this illusion that when I'm telling my stories that it's actually Coco Peru. And some of them are in my experiences dressed as Coco Peru, but other ones aren't. But I still want the audience to picture that Coco Peru is, is out there in the world having that experience mm -hmm. rather than, you know, boring me. Yeah. And I think that's aided it by, helps. yeah. Well, and it's aided by your um, YouTube series where you go out places. Um, I know those have been a, a bright shining light to me and in, in uh, frustrating days where I could just turn on one of your videos and watch you in world market or watch you play grand theft auto or something. <laughs> I know. I just can't believe the internet, how much, that changed my life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, speaking of all of that, I was, um, you mentioned that when you were starting, there wasn't a lot of uh, representation in the media. Um, given, given how representation for queer people has um, grown, especially in recent years, what are, your, what are your thoughts on how it's grown, where it's grown, um, and maybe some hopes for where it could go. You know, Vivian, as you were asking me that question, I realized my washing machine, my husband started a load of washers. <laughs> Can you hear that in the background? No, not at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so how has it changed? Well, when I created Coco, you have to, like I said, there was no internet, but also there was no really positive role models as far as queer people on television. Um, sometimes there would be talk shows that would have people on, but that was sort of uh, at times very um, inflammatory because you had an audience that was, some of the audience supported the queer people that were up there and others were, you know, yelling things at them. So it's never, just a, you know, Victor Victoria, the movie, that was one of the first uh, times where I saw gay people just being gay people. Yeah. And it, it both terrified me and I, I was so titillated watching that movie because I thought, oh my God, there, there's people out there that this is not a problem for them. And so um, I wanted to be in that world, that cabaret world. That's sort of where I first discovered. Honey, could you not make noise? <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> welcome to married life, Vivian. And welcome to internet podcasting. <laughs> Zoom podcasting. It's, we're, we're just, just getting I'm a amazed taste sometimes of everyday at life. my husband. It's like, <laughs> he's, he bangs around. I yell at him all the time. With, Sometimes I go to bed before him and I'm like, could you not bang around? I'm already sleeping. <laughs> My roommates are the same he's way. Giving, it's he's giving me, he just gave me the finger, but it was, <laughs> I'm telling you it was with love. 
<laughs> but um, <laughs> what was I saying? So, okay, so queer representation in, in the media. We were not represented at all. And when we were, it was often negatively. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I do remember like when queer movies started to um, be produced, they were so um, important to me. And I remember uh, Victor Victoria was a popular musical movie, mm-hmm. but those independent films that were being made. Uh, so I saw my first one and I had rented it at the video store and I was so nervous and I watched it. And my father walked in when I was watching it and I, I just sort of froze in my chair. And, um, but I remember thinking someday I want to be in a gay movie. And mm-hmm. so when I made Trick and I watched it for the first time at Sundance, I, I just busted out crying because I realized that I had achieved one of my goals of being in a gay movie that might help other people down the line. Mm-hmm. And so I've really seen the evolution of, you know, all of a sudden there's drag queens on television and there's gay characters on television and there being uh, LGBT people on TV isn't um, still extraordinary to me, but it, it's, it's just like, yeah, that's kind of what I always thought it should be. And yeah. it finally happened. And I remember years ago pitching uh, things to people out here in Hollywood and <laughs> even in New York. And, and they would just glaze over as soon as <laughs> you know, queer characters or drag queen was mm-hmm. mentioned. And now you could see they're, they're hungry for it. But I always knew that it was possible. It just takes a long time for people to change their mind. And I think of all the art that never got put out there back in the day that had value, you know? Yeah. I mean, it got out there in, in smaller venues, but there's so much that could have been really celebrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and something that frustrates me all the time, um, I mean, so I was born in 1990, so right when the year I created Coco. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so kind of as, as all of the, the, the AIDS crisis was blooming and all of that was going on. And um, I often find myself getting frustrated at um, not only the, the art that was lost during that time that could have been made, um, but also just there, there are so many fewer people to learn our history from. Um, and I find that people in my generation don't necessarily know our history as well as we could have um, or could because we don't necessarily have enough connections to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I just think that's an issue probably for every generation. Yeah. And I remember my parents complaining, you don't know how easy you have it because they had gone <laughs> through World War II and, mm. and I wasn't really that interested in hearing about it. Um, But now that I'm older, I wish my father was still alive so I could hear all of his uh, stories. Yeah, and I mean, we we have tenuous connections via some some, um, mainstream like musicals and plays and things like that. But 
um, especially because I'm living in in New York now, and I grew up in Seattle, but I'm living in New York now, and you can kind of see the the ghosts of that era on every corner, and like um, seeing places that are in photographs, and and you see black stills from the the queer rights, um, the queer liberation march, and all of those things that happened. Um, but well, it, it was it a lot of those so far away. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of those photos that inspired me to do what I do mm. that were from Stonewall and, and even before that of people being arrested. And there was there's some wonderful black and white photos of drag queens in a you know the back of a police van and mm. they're waving. And I just thought that was so you know, even being arrested, they they were empowered, whereas the gay men being arrested were walking out with their hand, you know, covering their hands mm-hmm. in shame was the drag queens were just uh, owning it. Yeah. And that really empowered me. I thought there's something about going out to that edge mm-hmm. where you're just stepping out of everything that, that um, society has set up as being reality and just shunning that reality and creating your own reality that is empowering. And you just, once you taste that, you just don't turn back because yeah. you realize that that's liberation, that's freedom. And these people in the queer community sometimes who are all about, well, it's not the right time to do, it's like, fuck that. I'm re- now's the time. This is my mm-hmm. life. I'm not waiting for the right time for everyone to feel comfortable around gay marriage. No, now, you know? Yeah. I mean, I didn't think gay marriage would happen in my lifetime, but I didn't, I didn't think, um, you know, I just, I always believe in pushing forward. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I think that was part of the AIDS activism that I witnessed was that um, when you're facing death, there's no time like the now. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that really inspired me as a young gay guy. Have you have you seen a shift within the community in terms of how um, drag queens are seen and treated? I think so. I mean, if you look at television, just drag is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's become much more mainstream. Um, I, years ago, pitched a show that's very much like the HBO show We're Here. Mm. And uh, of course, no one was interested in it. Um, So the fact that it's something like that is now on HBO and it has uh, that storytelling um, quality that I always thought was so important that the more you people share their stories, the more you realize how much we have in common, regardless of what the outside looks like. That was part of my goal of doing drag was to show that regardless of what I'm presenting, there's a story here. And if you listen to it, you're gonna realize how much you have in common with me, even though I might not look like you. Yeah. And so um, the fact that that show exists now on HBO or something similar to what I had pitched uh, shows me just how far we've come. Even when I was on Will and Grace the first time, uh, I was on it for a split second I uh, lived with my mother and um, then I was in, and even the whole energy of me being on that set was 
different. I came back 20 years later for the reboot and it was a completely different energy on that set. And I was celebrated and people saw, I think, wow, this queen has survived a long time and still doing (laughs) it. And there was like, almost, I felt like they honored me Hmm. in a way. And um, I felt so I mean, as well, they should. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, it it wasn't that way for so many years. And I was Hmm. always, you know, I, I can tell you some of the, I'm not going to waste your time, but but I was just going to say, some of the things that have been said to me over the years, even within the queer community and the entertainment mm-hmm. industry, um, I look back and I think, boy, I can't believe they thought they could say that to me. And the only reason mm. they could say that to me was they thought that I was less than because I was a drag queen. Yeah. And um, so I do think things have changed. Mm. I mean, I've I've only been in the game for five years now and I've even seen a shift from, uh, I remember the big thing when I started drag was, oh gross, I would never date a drag queen to drag queens now are like <laughs> the epitome of um, what everyone wants anymore. And it's, it's a really cool shift and, um, it's exciting that, to see the world coming around. <laughs> yeah, because you can only imagine that what it was like back when yeah. I started. I mean, we used to, well, I could say, uh, I can only speak for myself. And I knew I had talked to other drag queens about it, but you wouldn't, if you showed an interest in a guy, you did not tell them you were a drag queen until mm. it was like you had to come out to them. And so uh, it definitely has changed to see so many cute couples where one of them is a drag queen or sometimes both of them are drag queens and they um that's not an issue at all and it's often what attracted the person to the drag queen is is uh their drag it's Mm -hmm. just amazing to me speaking of which how did yeah how did um you and your husband meet i met him on a beach in Fire Island, but I had seen him on the ferry going over and he ended up sitting near me and uh, he was naked (laughs) and I liked what I saw. (laughs) I I thought he was out of my league, but um, I can, I'm not gonna share this story, but (laughs) I will share it very quickly. There was a sort of Now, at that time, you have to remember in the early 90s, there wasn't really much representation in terms of uh, chunky guys, Mm -hmm. you know? And this sort of chunky, not attractive guy walked over and started talking to Raphael. And then Raphael was like, oh, could you put some suntan lotion on my back? And the guy was rubbing his back and all this. And I, I just thought, I can't believe this not so attractive guy uh, has the guts to go up to this handsome guy and engage him. (laughs) And so um, he left and I thought, well, I can do that too. So my Raphael went down to take a swim and I walked down by the water's edge and I waited for him to come out and I started talking to him. So I, I never knew who that 
guy was, but he <laughs> inspired me to take a chance mm-hmm. and to think that, well, I'm not, I don't have such a great body, but he didn't either. At that time, what we considered, you know, mm-hmm. a perfect body and what we saw all the time in magazines and whatnot. And so I, uh, he inspired me to get up and take a chance. And uh, so I met Raphael and then uh, I didn't tell him I did drag. I warned my two friends that were with me to not tell him I did drag. <laughs> and uh, that was 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, I I have not had the opportunity myself, but um, it's always fun for me to hear um, about um, queer couples who are a generation or two above me just because, um, I mean, I didn't grow up around that. I grew up in a relatively conservative Christian home, so I don't really have many examples of queer relationships in my life that I can turn to and be like, oh, that's that's how it's done. <laughs> that's how it's done. Well, I think we were both raised, our, our situations and how we grew up were very different. Mm-hmm. But I think we were raised with the same kind of values. I also, when I saw Raphael, I saw kindness in his eyes. And that is what I always looked for. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I joked about his, him being naked in his body and definitely that was the attraction. But when I first saw him on that ferry, I thought he looks like such a kind person. Mm-hmm. And um, it was his eyes that, that came through. So I always encourage young people to look for kindness mm-hmm. and, uh, and then sort of see if you have the same values and part of being in a long-term relationship is that you make the other person feel safe and you commit to the relationship. And I always think of it like a bank account, being in the stock market, you keep contributing to it and it has its ups and its downs, but if you keep focused on it and make those contributions, suddenly these years pass and you realize, oh, I've built some wealth here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it, but it takes work and it and the other thing is is that um you always try to make the other person a better version of themselves and you try to live up to that as well in, with yourself and so um i think we both we both talk about that and acknowledge that we've done that for each other that's wonderful um Sorry, I just got really excited about that. <laughs> that was just, um, yeah, I don't hear many couples talking about their partners in that way. And that's just very touching and very, it's, it's wonderful to hear about a relationship like that. He's made me a better person. And uh, I think he's, been critical and even in my career, just supporting me and um, being a voice of reason. And, you know, I, I, I really do believe that my career wouldn't be where it is if it wasn't for him. And actually he was terrified when he first saw, saw my show and broke up with me because he didn't understand drag at the time and whatnot. And mm-hmm. 
and he called me back because he kept having dreams about me. And um, I said I would give him a second chance. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, definitely, he he uh, he has uh, been critical, really, in my mm-hmm. career. And he always matters most. I can have celebrities at my show telling me how great I am. Uh, and yet I need to hear it from him to know mm. that it was a good show. Yeah. Um, speaking of your career, um, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people will know your, your film acting credits and such. Um, but I was wondering what are some of your favorite projects that you've worked on that maybe haven't been like a movie or, um, mainstream TV show? I would say that's just my live stage shows. Those are where I started and my writing has evolved and it's gotten better over the years. And when I feel the energy and the intimacy that's created in that theater or whatever space I'm performing in, um, it's just magical to feel that, okay, everyone in this room is in the same, like we're all experiencing the same moment together and it's powerful. Mm-hmm. And people, some have walked away saying that was like church. And I think in a way it is like gay church. Um, so I think those moments probably have been the, the things that I'm most proud of and that I've gotten such wonderful feedback. Like, you know, when you put an intention into the world mm-hmm with a show and that, and what my intentions are with the show, when you get the feedback, that's exactly what you had intended. That's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. How do you go about writing your shows? Is it something that's um, organic over time or do you find that you have to kind of sit down and force yourself (laughs) to come up with something? I force myself. It's torture. (laughs) I actually, and I, encourage young people out there i would say it deadlines are the answer to your dreams i book my shows before i have them written Hmm. and then i am i am required to have to sit down and write and turn something out and it's terrifying but you know that's that's life it is terrifying but Mm -hmm. when you push through all of that it um that's when the magic starts to happen and so I always set deadlines for myself. And then I sit down and I start writing. And it is a long, I give myself three months to write a show. And it's a long, obsessive process. And I will write 180 pages of dialogue that you know needs to be whittled down to about 30. Wow. And... Um, I edit it over and over and over and over, and then I rehearse it. Then I work with the director. I also work with a musical director. I pick songs out, but I don't like using um, tracks mm-hmm. that are, you know, you, uh, that you buy. I I create my my own tracks so that uh, because sometimes I think songs go on too long, <laughs> and I can, you know, seen plenty of drag show where they're singing. I'm like, girl. That's a five minute song. <laughs> you need to get that down to about two and a half minutes. 
we don't need that musical break. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I work on uh, with a musical director on making tracks, and um, it, yeah, it's it's to me it's theater. Mm. And even when I'm performing in a nightclub, uh, I try to transform it into a theater, even with the music that they play pre-show. I bring my own pre-show music mm. and because they'll play, you know, dance music sometimes in these clubs. You, you've got to create a different energy for the audience as they walk in to let them know that this isn't a dance club tonight. This is a theater. Yeah. And so I, I bring my own pre-show music to start to create a different energy in that room. Hmm. You could say I'm a little bit of a control freak. <laughs> but I think we have to be in theater. I, I absolutely agree that I see drag as, as performance art, as a theater production. Yeah, and I'll say this too. My, my freedom on stage is not... Because people always say, oh, you're so like... Um, natural on stage and so relaxed well I'm not <laughs> and uh, I mean I sometimes I can become relaxed but you're always on yeah and I will say that my freedom that people experience while I'm on stage is because I have discipline in preparing the show and working on my craft Mm. Other people don't operate that way, and I respect that. But I find, as a performer, the people that really, that I love so much, have that discipline and work on a craft. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I um, have been in theater for years myself and, and find that the shows that tend to feel the most natural are the ones that I've put extra time into memorizing and into rehearsing my blocking and my choreography to the point where I don't have to think about it anymore. Right. And then you can just kind of live in the moment after exactly. that. Exactly. It's discipline for me brings forth that freedom. And mm. I, and I just, uh, I've never been into imp I can improvise, but I improvise only because I'm so aware of my material. that mm. if something happens and I need to improvise, I can. But um, I prefer to be really uh, disciplined about all of it. Excuse me. Ooh, I was singing beforehand and my throat went dry. <clears throat> went dry. I like that old cabaret joke. Ooh, I've, got a, <laughs> I've got a frog throat. Used to be a prince. <laughs> An old joke. Oh, I love it, though. Um, what? I, I've started asking all of my guests this um, just because I feel like um, we sometimes need to hear certain, like we, we always need advice and we always need to hear new things. But um, one of the things I love about the advice that I get from a lot of Queens is it's all very similar, but it's all said in very different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and we all need to hear the same thing in many, many different ways sometimes to, um, for it to sink in. So I was mm -hmm. just wondering if you have any advice for um, queer people out there who are just starting their journey in the community or if you specifically have advice for queens who are starting. God, that's such a broad question. <laughs> I try. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> I would say, 
you know, a, a lot of times people in the past uh, mm-hmm. have written to me asking me, how, how do you become famous? Or I want to be famous or I want to be on television. And, you know, those are, it's great to be on TV. It was, it's, it's a lot of fun, but um, I would say to dig deeper within yourself and figure out what do you, what is your core value? Mm. Where do you find your authenticity and try to live from that place and if fame or getting the opportunity to work on television comes along, great. Uh, but the, the being authentic and the, what your core value is should always be what leads you forward. Mm-hmm. It's a much healthier foundation and a stronger foundation to lead from than the attraction of fame or what you think all of that is. Mm. And so I always encourage young people to dig deeper into themselves and figure out how they really want to change the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you get really clear about what that is, as those fears start popping up in your life, you find that your core value and your goals are bigger than those fears. So the fears are easier to uh, let go of Mm. because you have a foundation that's stronger than that. So I try to encourage young people to, to figure that out for themselves. I also don't think, um, you should ever copy anybody else. You can be inspired by people, but really yeah. try to find your own, your own voice. And um, so those are just a couple of things that I discovered when I created Coco. And that, that they left a lasting impact on me. Mm-hmm. And anytime I get distracted by uh, nonsense, my husband is the voice that reminds me and he will ask me, why did you create Coco? And that brings me back to that, again, to that core value, foundation, goal, you know, those, those, those things. I love that. that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, and that, that, question to ask oneself why did I create this why did I start this journey is such a such a good question that I think more of us need to ask more often (laughs) because you can you know I've read I've I've you know I follow people I see people online and they get caught up in in drama within their circle of friends or the clubs or this and that Mm. and I I think god if they asked they all asked themselves what why did I create this was it to get into all of that stuff or is there a bigger purpose here yeah. and uh so we have to sometimes step back and and i'm guilty of it myself when i start comparing myself to other people or my fears start cropping in i've gone through depressions and you know i'm not saying my life is uh, easy by any means it's it's been a roller coaster especially now with this pandemic but mm. um what has always brought me back to 
sort of being centered is what we talked about just a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any practices that you use to kind of recenter yourself or anything that you do that helps you get back into that headspace? Uh, well, it's basically sometimes it's literally just reluctantly opening the computer and forcing myself to sit down and start writing. And then all of a sudden, you know, three hours later, I'm like, wow, I actually created a little something here or the core of something, a a little nugget. Um, Other times I listen to music. Music is for me is just everything, all types of music. And depending on what I want to create emotionally, uh, I will pick music out that helps put me in that place so that I can connect in with that and then produce it into words. So um, music for me is a, is a good place for me to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that I miss terribly is I used to love to have dinner parties. Mm-hmm. And um, I, f- I find the intimacy that I, I create here in my home with friends is, is wonderful. And I tell everybody that ever comes into my home that nothing is off limits and uh, you can say anything over my dinner table. And I've often encouraged people to tell a shit, an embarrassing shit story over dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, I just think there's nothing more real. Yeah. (laughs) And bottom line, than someone telling, you know, a story about shitting in their pants at one point in their (laughs) life. And, you know, a friend of mine was, I could tell was a bit horrified. And he at one point said, why are we all, why why are we talking about this? And and another friend said, his partner turned to me, says, because look at us, we're hysterically laughing and we can all relate. And it just like, it just brought us all to this like very real place. And I, Uh I, I always encourage that whether it's a shit story or not, but that's what's important <laughs> to me. But my point is, is that through, through my dinner parties, I've, I've told stories over dinner and, and, and I can tell like, oh, that got a big laugh or I could see it resonated deeply with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever, if, if I'm telling a serious story or a funny story. And oftentimes uh, my imagination is sparked over a dinner table by a story I've told where I think, okay, that that resonated with people, I can turn that into uh, a monologue within my show or a moment within my show. Yeah, I miss, I miss the ability to spend time with, with people like that. It's mm-hmm. the biggest loss in this pandemic, honestly. <laughs> Same here. Um, well, I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, thank you so very much for having a conversation with me and, and taking some time out of your day. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Vivian, I have a question for you. Yes. When you're performing in drag, do you wear fingernails or do you go without fingernails? Uh, it, it depends. I usually ah. don't. <laughs> ah. That's my pet peeve. I know. and it's, I don't know. It's, it's something I'm a very tactile person. And I feel like when I wear nails, I can't, I I get too dainty and I don't feel like I can do things. 
Oh, well, you can but... buy short ones. <laughs> I promise you that I will start doing it every time. Well, you don't have to. It's it, <laughs> Listen, Drake, I, I get pissy when I see uh, people on <laughs> online uh, blasting uh, the drag queens for, she's not a real, like, you know, people even said, she's not a real drag queen. She doesn't do drag makeup. And it's like, what are you talking about? Or her wig is, she wears the same wig or whatever they say. And it's just makes me laugh. Cause I think, you know, when I created Coco, drag was drag. It was, mm-hmm. you get to be whoever you want to be. It's your creation. It, I mean, we're not here to copy each other. We're not here to do a look or to have, you know, we're here to create ourselves. Yeah. That's what our gift as a being a human being is. We get mm-hmm. to create ourselves. That's what drag resonates with people. That's what I was knew drag would resonate with people is because we drag queens teach human beings that you get to create yourself. Mm-hmm. And so um, you don't have to wear nails. <laughs> uh, I would just say that sometimes I get distracted by a man hand is all I'm saying. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I get distracted by men's hands all the time myself. <laughs> all right, darling. All right. Thank well, you thank so you very much. Support, okay? Stay yeah, well and keep making the world beautiful. Yeah. You too. Thank you so much, Coco. I am. Bye. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Yeah But with Vivian Gabor. Tune in next week. Same place, same time. Yeah.